Thank you, worship team. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here and trust that you've enjoyed our worship thus far. We uh, come into our time of worship through and over God's word and God's truth. And my role is to uh, proclaim it and to uh, try to teach it. And our role together is to uh, submit to it. So may the Lord help us to, uh, to get there. My working title for tonight's message is first, from 1 Corinthians 16 is, Have You Ever Wondered What Church Is Supposed to Be Like? Have you ever wondered what church is supposed to be like? Now, there would be many people who would answer to that with a hearty yes. I have wondered what church is supposed to be like. And the reason that people wonder about that is that churches are filled with so much dysfunction and so many problems and always drama and issues and all the rest. Like every family, every church has warts and weaknesses and uh, difficulties of all different kinds. Maybe you've heard it said, uh, if you ever find a perfect church, don't go there because you will ruin it. That's right. In fact, I want to make something clear. This church was perfect until you showed up (laughs) and ruined the good thing that we had going on here. So what is the church supposed to be like? You know, even in the early church, when uh, it's so easy to look back on it and say, well, that was when everything was utopic and was perfect and was the way that it was supposed to be. Uh, Actually, no, there was problems from the beginning. And if we have learned anything in this two and a half year study of the book of 1 Corinthians, it is that at least in the Corinthian church, there was dysfunction and trouble of every kind. We find in the church chronic infighting. This is the Corinthian church. Judgmentalism, immorality, selfishness, and on and on we could go. Paul could have saved a lot of time and trouble by simply writing them a letter that said, shut the doors. And uh, this series would have been much shorter as well, by the way, if he would have done that, which clearly... Uh, He didn't, which I think is actually noteworthy, and we're going to get to that at the end of the message, that Paul, in spite of all of these incredible problems, Paul hung in there with the Corinthians, and he had hope. Now, this last chapter is uh, kind of like a rainbow at the end of a torrential downpour. You read the first 15 chapters, and it is a torrential uh, downpour of, it's a, it's a scathing letter from the Apostle Paul. I mean, he just rips them apart. And then you get to chapter 16, and lo and behold, there's good news. And we find at the end of the story that there's good people in the church, and there's good ministry that's going on. At the end of my message today, I'm going to explain why good news for Corinth is good news for us as well. Now, remember here in chapter 16, this is where the Apostle Paul uh, gets personal. He gets chatty. 
here. I told you last week I thought about entitling these two messages, Tweets for My Peeps, because it is kind of like that. The Apostle Paul is just writing these little, these little comments and notes. Hey, by the way, and, 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 and it sounds a lot like our emails and our letters that we write to one another. Hey, by the way, tell so-and-so that I said hello. And I'm hoping that I can maybe be there over Christmas. And by the way, make sure Karen knows that I said hi. Those kinds of comments is exactly what we find chapter 16 saying. Now, it's kind of random, and it's a little hard to organize and to preach, frankly, but uh, we're going to give it our best shot here. As we really, as we finish chapter 16, we're saving chapter 15 for coming weeks with uh, Easter coming up about the resurrection. So we're taking them slightly out of order, actually completely out of order. Uh, there's nothing slight about it. But as I said last week, I think when I get to heaven, the Apostle Paul will go, ah, it's okay. It's fine. All right, so what... What is church supposed to be like? And what are the marks of what we would call a vibrant, healthy, flourishing congregation? And we find three here, and this is my rough outline. Here's the first thing. I want us to note the kind of character that, that, is, that is found in a vibrant church. What kind of character is there? And we pick it up now, beginning in verse 13. Uh, Here's what he says. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all be done in love. We'll stop there. Character. There is no substitute for character you can have flash and you can have splash but at the end of the day what really matters is character and for a church there are certain character qualities that are absolutely necessary for that church to make it for that church to survive and by the way i would say the same thing is true for christians as well there are certain character qualities that are make or break character qualities for any christian true for us here tonight and so you might even think to yourself, well, what is, what are those essential things? Like if I went around and polled, what do you think is really important for a church to make it? We have any number of things that maybe would come out here tonight. Here is the apostle Paul's list. And it's here at the end of the letter. It's, it's, his words here are real staccato. Did you notice that when I read it? Just short little sentences where he is kind of like a coach who uh, before the team takes the field or before they go out on the court, he'll have, okay, here's our strategy and here's the things going on. And all right, men, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, it's going to be defense and, and you're going to get under the boards and rebound and pass the ball. And that kind of, mm, 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 that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Last second, don't forget, do this. Did you get that? I think we need to turn up the volume tomorrow. (laughs) Be watchful, he says. Stand firm. Be men. Be strong. Do it in love. Boom, 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 boom. So let's just walk through these quickly. And I think what he's doing here is he's essentially summarizing the things that the Corinthians should have been doing all along. And if they would have been doing those things all along, he wouldn't have had to write the letter in the first place. So we begin, first of all, be watchful, be watchful. Some translations say, be on your guard. 
It just basically means this. Look out. Corinthians, look out. Be on the watch. And clearly this is something that they needed to do. One of the big problems in the church was their lack of discernment. They just took in all the cultural and, and uh, cultural philosophies of, of Corinth. They just incorporated them into the church. There was no discernment. They just sort of were taking things in. They needed to have eyes that were on the lookout for truth. What is true? What is false? What is right? What is wrong? We've seen things like this. Uh, what is wisdom? Is, is wisdom found in the Greeks or is wisdom found in Christ? Who's it important to follow? A leader like Apollos or Peter or Paul or to follow Christ? Is sexual purity important? Not in Corinth, but it should have been in the church. It wasn't. They just didn't, they weren't on the lookout. They needed to be. Secondly, he says, stand firm. This has the idea of persevere. Don't give up. Don't quit. Where are they supposed to stand firm? It says in the faith. And this is one of these words that can go subjectively. It can mean, you know, my personal faith. Or it can mean uh, the faith, the Christian faith. And that's the way that it means here. He's staying, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the truths and the doctrines of the Christian faith. And there is a corpus of truth, primarily in the gospel, but really the body of truth as presented in Christ and in the word, that we are called to stand firm in and not to compromise and not to give in to. Stand firm. Here's some other verses that speak to this. Jude 3, contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. First Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of the faith. Philippians 1, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friends, what are the, you know, what is it really that, that, that draws us together here tonight? What is, what brings us together as a church? This is not a social club, although it's going to feel that way by the time we're done with this message, I'll warn you. Uh, forget I said that, but it, you'll know why I get to that in a moment. But it, it is more than that. In fact, it is not primarily that. It's something more foundationally that. What gathers us here is Christ. The gospel that has been handed down to us for 2,000 years as men and women have been faithful to the faith and they're in their generation and now here we are in ours. We need to stand firm in it, not to compromise. He says this, thirdly, be men. Now sisters, do not be offended by this comment here that the Apostle Paul makes to be men. He doesn't say be women. He says be men. What is that uh, What is that all about? Well, the word has to do with courage. It means be courageous like a valiant man. If this was the early 90s, we might translate it this way. Don't be girly men. <laughs> Nothing worse than effeminate spiritual men. A lack of strength of character and 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 fortitude be valiant he's saying here and how important of course this is to be courageous and you may say well i'd like to be but i feel so weak and indeed we all do i had a day like that today if you'd have caught me earlier in this day my prayers this afternoon before this service was that i would apply this very truth 
Give me courage. You know where the Christian courage comes from? It doesn't come from like we just sort of say, I'm going to be courageous now. Christian courage draws on the promises of God and believes that God will do what he has said he's going to do. Okay? And boy, there are times that we need it. In fact, I would have to believe here tonight there are some of us, some dear brothers and sisters here tonight, uh, that are in need of some courage. And there is anxiety and trouble and you're thinking about punting and running away or whatever it is. Hear the Apostle Paul, be courageous. Rest and trust in God's good promises to us, which are all yes in Jesus. Be strong. Do everything in love. We spent a long time on love, did we not? Oh, yes, we did. If you love the love series, say amen. Amen. Okay, good. Uh, And I would amen that as well. That was a transformational series in my own life but if they'd been doing this just that one little thing there do everything in love think of all the trouble it would have saved them and 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 us in studying it along the way if they had loved each other they would not have been divisive like they were if they would have loved each other uh they would have confronted lovingly the sinful brother within the congregation if they had loved one another they would have waited for everybody to get to the lord's supper so they could take it together if they had loved one another they wouldn't have been suing one another and on and on throughout the whole letter we go if they simply would have loved one another so many of the other problems would have been taken care of Just that one, do everything in love. Be motivated by agape, self-giving for the good and joy of another. In the congregation, as best we can, being the still selfish, sinful people that we are, we are to strive to do what we can to serve one another. Do everything in love. Would have completely changed the church in Corinth and many, many local churches, indeed ours as well. And so we have this little Newt Rockney speech here from the Apostle Paul. Uh, and you just hear the staccato in those words. And, you know, winning teams win or listen to their coach. And so we need to listen to our coach here who's telling us what a winning church is like. Open your eyes, Christians. Okay? Stand firm in the faith. Show some courage. Make sure you do everything in love. Now get out there and win one for the Gipper. That's what Paul's saying there, okay? So as we look at this last section, what is a church supposed to be like? What is a flourishing kind of church? What's it like? There's character qualities that distinguish it. So let's just take a moment. Why don't we just do a little self-inventory and take a look at that? Are we watchful? Are we standing firm? Are we acting like valiant men? Are we striving to be strong? And are we doing everything in love? That sounds like a pretty good church to me. How about you? I wouldn't mind being a part of a church like that. That sounds good. Second thing that we find here are the kinds of servants, the kinds of people that are in a vibrant, flourishing church. And we pick it up now in verse 15, and now this gets ever so interesting. Some of you maybe who are, who like, uh, you know, drama, uh, uh, Christian soap opera. I don't know if that's even, there's, those two shouldn't go together probably, but, um, 
These next verses are filled with a kind of uh, church political intrigue, uh, which I will try to explain. You may not get on the, uh, just on the get-go, but we, we pick it up in verse 15. What, what kinds of people do you find in great churches? Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in uh, Achaia. It's not the store, it's the region. <laughs> I don't even think I said that right, actually. Achaia probably is the proper pronunciation. And that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. All right, now there's way more drama going on here than meets the eye. Uh, so let me explain it. We begin, first of all, with this fellow named Stephanos. Now, we can't help but like him right away, if for no other reason than just simply his name. Stephanos is a form of the name Stephen or Steve. So from the get-go, we know that this is a, this is a likable guy. I just feel inclined to be for this fellow. I can't exactly explain why. Now, here it says a couple things about him. First of all, he was the first convert in that whole region. He and his family. So this is, this is a charter member of the church. We know from chapter 1 that Paul baptized him and his family. So there was, from the beginning, charter member. Paul's there, baptizes this family. They've been in it from the beginning. Notice what they were known for, verse 15. Stephanos and his family were dedicated to the service of the saints. Dedicated to the service of the saints. King James translates it, interestingly, this way. Addicted to serving the saints. Addicted. So these... This family is clearly, this is, this, these are not simply attenders of the church of Corinth. These are not uh, spiritual consumers of the church at Corinth. These were the kind of family and the kind of people that were, these were the go-to kind of people. These were gamers. Well, maybe call them that way. These are, these are gamers. You just, you could count on them. They were in it. They were for it. They weren't just pretending their hearts were there. Totally involved. They were addicted. I imagined uh, Stephanos going to his support group and saying, Hi, my name is Stephanos. I am an addict. I'm addicted to serving the saints. Like an addict, Stephanos and his family couldn't get enough of it. You know, it doesn't matter what you're addicted to. You can't get enough of it. For this family, serving the Lord was like that. And serving in the church was like that. It was, they, they just could not get enough of it. They loved it. They loved to find ways to assist and to express love for the Lord any way that they can. In fact, we have one right here implicit in the text. Remember, this is a letter that was the response to a letter that the Corinthians wrote to the, uh, the wrote to Paul uh, all the way over in Ephesus. Now, for us, we write an email or we write a letter and we put it in the box and we don't think anything of it, uh, and it shows up wherever we send it. 
Not so in the day. That letter somehow had to get from Corinth all the way to Ephesus. Which to you is like, oh, that can't be such, not such a big deal. The world's not very big back then. Well, no, wait a second. 180 miles. I decided to throw a map up here for, uh, to give you an idea. 180 miles, mostly by boat. And this, uh, you know, this isn't uh, the love boat that uh, they're traveling on. This wasn't a cruise. Uh, this was a somewhat perilous journey with road and land and travel and all the rest. So imagine this. Uh, the, the, the church writes the letter, and they get done with the letter. They say, hey, do we get all the questions on here that we want to ask? We got all the questions on there. All right, who's going to take the letter from here all the way over to Ephesus? All right, we'll take any volunteers. Would you please, you know, would you please uh, state your name? Would you please raise your hand? Chirp, chirp, chirp. And I imagine the people in the church going, you know what? You know what? If we don't raise our hands... I guarantee you, Stephanos is going to do it because we all know he's that kind of guy in the church. And so they all sat there like this, waiting, and Stephanos is like, all over that. They're like, yeah. He's the one who carries the letter, but that's just like this guy. He was a servant. No big deal for him. It's the way that he lived his life. Now, there is a little bit more drama here, and we see in verse 18 that Paul writes, he says this, recognize men like him, recognize men like Stephanos. Now, that may seem like just a nice thing to say, but we know that there's more intrigue going on here. Do you remember all the way back in chapter 1 where the church was divided into these factions? There were some people that said, we follow Apollos. And by saying we follow Apollos, they were basically saying, we don't like Peter and Paul. We're not for them. And then there was a group that said, we're for Peter. And, and Apollos, he ain't nothing. And, and Paul, he ain't nothing. Well, then there were people that were following Paul as well in the church. And there was all this rancor back and forth between these uh, three groups. Stephanos was loyal to Paul. And can you imagine in a kind of, what I call it last week, snake pit, like uh, Corinth was, the kinds of things that were being said about old Stephanos, hanging in there with the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine the Apollos group going to him and saying, Stephanos, would you, I mean... Paul, he's he's old school. He is a fuddy-duddy. Apollos, man, he's like the rock star right now. You got to get rid of him and come over to our side. And then the Peter group coming over to uh, Stephanos and going, Stephanos, what are you hanging with Paul? Why are you being true to Paul? Come on. Everybody knows Peter's the rock. Peter, rock. Come on, you know. And and what's your problem? And and yet in spite of that, we find Stephanos, here's another character quality, he was incredibly loyal. Incredibly loyal. And Paul, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says about him, give recognition to men like this. Friends, what makes a great church? Oftentimes we say, well, it's a great pastor or it's a great leader. That makes a great church. I would say to you, that is not the case. You know what makes a great church? Great Christians in the church. The church is people. The church is not the building. The church is not the pastor. The church is the people in the church. And the temperature of their walk, commitment, consecration, service, dedication, love, passion, 
is the temperature of the church. You get what I'm going at here? And when you can look out and you can see men like Stephanos or women like Stephanos in the congregation, well, now that is a great church. Imagine a whole church filled with Stephanos types. That would be a church that would truly rock. They would Peter. <laughs> and so I just want to, you know, the, the Bible occasionally, you run across these characters that you just get little bitty glimpses of, but they seem so intriguing. And this Stephanos is one of them. And I just want to hold him out to you as an example of a servant-hearted, addicted to service, loyal, faithful, godly man that if Paul writes, give recognition to him, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it means that God is saying, give recognition to people like this. Stephanos. You with me on that? I'm thankful in our congregation to know that we have some Stephanos types, gamers, our go-to people, people that we can depend on. We know that when the chips are down, or what's uh, with the old song, uh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, that's the Stephanos types. We have them in this congregation. I can look around this congregation and I can see the Stephanoses looking back at me going, oh, I'm not one of them. Yeah, you are. You are. Profoundly thankful for you. And if you're going, I don't know if I'm one of those or not, then maybe the example of this man could inspire you to be one. I think this is what greatness in the church is really all about. Or how about the next names? You ever hear of Aquila and Priscilla? Oh yes. Well, these are famous people indeed. And here we find them in chapter 16, Aquila and Priscilla mentioned in verse 19. Um, and I just note them, we don't find that much about them here, but they're a famous couple in the, in the Bible. They met Paul in Corinth. Converted to faith in Corinth. Uh, we're with Paul apparently in Ephesus. And this is a power couple in the Bible. Uh, they, they gave guidance to Apollos, the rock star. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Priscilla uh, <laughs> were the ones that God used to bring Apollos really into a deeper understanding of the faith. We know that this one, this couple hosted churches in their homes in three cities in ephesus corinth and rome they had churches in their home this is this is a power couple and by the way ladies there's some redemption for you here you might be smarting over the be men comment earlier but aquila and priscilla are mentioned six times in the bible four of them priscilla the woman is mentioned first and i take from that that she was a woman of great distinction and christian character priscilla She'll be one of those to meet in heaven and go, oh, tell me more. Tell me more. Friends, here's the last thing I want to say about this. You may think to yourself, especially I think maybe in a, in a larger church, and Bethel is a larger church, you may think to yourself, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm just one person, or I'm, I'm just one couple, or I'm just in one family. I can't make that big of a difference. The thing, I can't be a Stephanos. I can't be noteworthy. I can't, I can't do that kind of thing because I'm just one of, of many, many people. Here's what I want you also to see from the text. The Apostle Paul says that Stephanos refreshed him 
refreshed his spirit. And you know what you know what we know about the Apostle Paul? How many churches did he plant? A lot. His ministry spread across Asia Minor, across the Roman Empire. He had churches all over the place. He had tremendous responsibilities. So many people that he was ministering to that could have gotten lost in the shuffle. But there was this one fellow named Stephanos. And what does Paul say about Stephanos? He refreshed my spirit. He made a difference for me. Just one person. And that means there isn't one of us that's here tonight that can't make a profound difference for the Lord. And in the ministry of the church and in the congregation, every one of us is important. And the Holy Spirit noted him by name. And I submit that to you for your encouragement. Because again, great churches are dependent on having great Christians. And great Christians look a lot like Stephanos in the orientation of their life. You feeling what I'm saying here? I'm trying to encourage us here and challenge as well. So maybe right now we could just pause. I'm going to give you just a second to pray a little prayer, something like this. God, help me be a little more like Stephanos around here. God, help me be a little more like Priscilla around here. I'm going to give you 15 seconds and then the sermon's going to continue. Lord, I pray that you will answer these prayers that we've offered. Amen. All right, so we have the kind of character. We have the kind of servants. Third, final, is the kind of relationships in a vibrant church. I pick it up in verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and, and you'll notice it's a slightly different spelling here, but it's Priscilla, okay, his wife. Together with the church in their house, send you what kind of greetings? Hearty greetings. In the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, with this greeting, or write this greeting with my own hand. Now let's just stop there. What is the word that you hear repeated over and over again there? It is the word... Greeting, right? Everyone's greeting everyone. And greeting, of course, is, is, is a kind of, you know, hello, how are you? We do the same kind of thing. We don't say greetings so much, but we say, hey. It's kind of like one church saying to the other church, hey. And the people in the church, hey. It's a sign of relationship. It's a sign of friendship and fellowship and intimacy, Christian love. Now, I, uh, are you getting the sense with it here? These are relational words of warmth and love and affection. Now, I want to talk about one phrase here in particular, and it's the one phrase that you're hoping that I don't talk about. Let me quote it. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right, let's just take a moment right now, and why don't you just look at the people around you for a moment. 
Spouses are all like, oh, look at you, honey. I ain't talking about your spouse. I'm talking about the people around you if you have a spouse, all right? Did you look around? How you feel about this verse? Now that was Tammy, our director of women's ministries here. And that says a lot about her. And it really does. And we love you for it. (laughs) All right. Now, let's talk about this because it probably doesn't mean what you think it might mean. Even some of you that think you really do know what it means. Let's talk about it. We always have to remember the Bible was written in a cultural context. Some of the truths, most of the truths, I would say, of the Bible transcend culture and therefore are completely applicable in our culture, just like they were then. There are some things, though, that are uh, culturally defined. Remember chapter 11, we talked about women and HUD coverings and those kinds of things. And so here we have something that is like that, because in the culture of the day, it was very acceptable, normal to when you met somebody, saw somebody, you would give them a kiss on the cheek. And this is still true in many parts of the world, particularly in the Middle East. To this day, they will, when they greet each other, they will give them a kiss on the cheek. In fact, I've been in Egypt where there's Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, and the customs are different. In Upper, I forget which one it is, Upper Egypt, you kiss one cheek, then the other cheek, and then back to the first cheek. And in Lower Egypt, you do one cheek and then the other. And if you do the wrong one in the wrong area, it's highly offensive. So you always have to keep your kissing in mind. Uh, where, you know, where am I and what kind of kiss am I supposed to make? But it's even in our, Today's uh, world, this is very common, not so common in the American culture, but basically what it meant is acceptance and relationship. I'm bringing you into my personal space and I'm showing that I, that I accept you. Now notice though what Paul says here. He doesn't simply say, uh, greet one another with a kiss. He calls it a what kiss? A holy kiss. Notice that's there's no W there. It's just simply H-O-L-Y. Holy kiss. Now, for singles here, I also want to, and, 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 and teenagers, I want to make it clear, holy doesn't mean any date after the first date. Okay, that's as well. I want to make that point. Uh, here's what happened. The early church took what was a culturally acceptable norm, and they filled it with Christian meaning. The kiss of greeting became a holy kiss. And here's what it means. It meant much more than merely acceptance. A holy kiss meant mutual love for God and mutual love for one another. Hendrickson, one commentator, says there's three people involved in a holy kiss. There are the two people that are actually engaged in the kiss, and then there is God as well. Because he is the one who is making this now more than simply two people meeting on the street. But an expression of Christian affection and acceptance uh, within the congregation. I would say to you, only Christians can kiss, kiss like this. A Christian holy kiss. Now some of you right now are going, oh, we are. It just means shake hands. Does it? Does shaking hands, does shaking hands signify mutual love? If so, Rahm Emanuel loves half of Chicago. 
uh, and every politician does as well. You know, we'll shake hands with just about anybody. A Christian expression of love is a little more expressive, I would say, than merely shaking hands. It's deeper than that as well. So where Christianity is healthy, here's what I'm saying. Where Christianity is healthy, Christians are affectionate for one another. Affectionate for one another. More than just simply people randomly attending a church together, happening to sit around one another in the, in the auditorium, flying by one another in the foyer of the church, but realizing that the relationships that we have are far deeper and more meaningful because of Christ. We are in an eternal relationship with one another. And healthy Christianity feels like that. Okay? If you went to a church and everybody was very stoic and cold and, and you know, you walked in and, and everyone's, you know, greet one another like that. You go, these people are weird. Don't they understand the love of God, right? Okay, it's easy to criticize like that, isn't it? We look at, oh, <laughs> who tonight, who tonight did you give an expression of Christian affection to? You had plenty of time before the service, most of you. Did you just come marching in here and take your seat with people sitting around you that you didn't say hi to or give any kind of a greeting of any kind? Or did you see yourself in relationship with people that called for some kind of tenderness towards? And when you, a healthy church, people are going to be affectionately tender. Now, the the touchy-feely people right now are going, I love this message. And some of you are going, I hate this. No. Okay, touchy-feely people, God bless you. We're glad you're here. Maybe you can warm up the other end of the spectrum a little bit, and we can find a nice balance. We're not calling for faking it. But for many of us, I think it would mean loosening up a little bit. Now, before the single men get really excited about the prospects of this, I want to, (laughs) I want to make something else clear that even in the early church, they would, this was done within the gender. Okay. So bear that in mind. I remember my mom, this is a famous story. I I won't tell this tomorrow because I won't have time, but tonight I do. I remember my mom ran into a guy from our church, kind of, he was like the creepy guy in the church in the grocery store, and my dad was with him, and that man laid one right on my mom's lips in the grocery store. And we talk about it to this day. Okay, don't do that. Don't do that. But don't you think this is assuming something that we do need to work on? It's assuming that we have a level of relationship with other Christians in the church that we could be that way towards, right? And this assumes that we actually know some people in the church. And in the American church these days, it's very easy to just kind of be in a tender and 
float in, float out, be on your way, check off the list, and, and think everything's fine. Well, I've done my thing. I'm, ex- I'm experiencing New Testament Christianity. Well, here's one area you certainly are not. You're like, well, I don't want that. I get plenty of that at work. Do you? Really? I doubt it. I get a lot of that at the bowling alley. Really? Do you want that there? I... Where in our culture do you go that anybody gives a rip about you? Really? I can tell you one. The church. And I would submit to you that this is even even the most stoic, non-touchy-feely person here, if they were totally honest, would say in their deepest heart, I actually kind of would want that. Isn't this what we want? I think it is. I think that it is. Got me thinking about the, uh, you know, the, the, the Cheers uh, show and millions of people would tune in to watch people pretend like they liked each other. Theme song. Sometimes you go where everybody knows your name. And they've always, they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Who doesn't want that? Bars fill up. They're filled tonight throughout all of Chicagoland with people desperately wishing somebody would care for them and that they would feel from that other person that it's actually genuine in some way. We all want that. And in the church, because of Christ and his love, it doesn't have to be fakey. We are called to love one another and we're enabled to do so. So, may I offer some suggestions? I think we need to work on this. Let's work on this, okay? Can we say to a brother or sister in Christ, Here, I think verbal is a good way to start, I love you. That can be very hard to do, can't it? Especially men. You know, the previous part of this message, you were all excited. That's right, we're warriors around here. And now we get to this part and you're like, oh, I hate this. Warriors don't love one another. They kill one another. (laughs) But to say, hey, I just want you to know that I, I love you can be the most masculine thing that you ever say in your life. And ladies, it comes easier for you, but work on it too, okay? Work on it too. And as appropriate for our culture to engage each other with physical expressions. Be very careful cross-gender kind of things, all right? But let's greet one another with holy handshakes, hugs, fist bumps, whatever it is that is an expression of affection for you, do it towards people in the church. Be affectionate. All right. So the qualities of a vibrant church, stand firm, be on the watch, persevere, everything in love. The kinds of people you find in a vibrant church, people like Stephanos, addicted to service. What are relationships like in a vibrant church? Warm, affectionate, people greeting one another, vibrant, One more thing I want to say tonight. 
What is most remarkable about these verses is that they're even here at all. What is most remarkable about these verses is that they are even here at all. This whole letter, 1 Corinthians, has been one giant scathing letter where he has pointed out flaws and troubles and attitudes and sins and issues of every kind. And some of them are nasty even by our modern standards. I mean, this is a letter where you would expect to get to the end for him to say something like, phooey on all of you. I am done with you. And yet, the last words of the entire letter are this. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. (laughs) What? (laughs) I love you? Is the last thing that Paul has to say to this church? I mean, how, seriously, how could the, an apostle love a group of really just messed up, selfish, nutcase, what can, I can't even come up with the right words for the kinds of people that this chapter has described or this book has described these Corinthians to be. I mean, they are just, they're whiners, they're complainers, they're self-obsessed, they're all about themselves all the time. I mean, how could an apostle love a group of people like this? The same way, my friends, that God loves people like us. And what are we here? We're a group of whiny, complaining, self-focused, self-obsessed people, all too often much like what we've seen in this letter. And this is why I say to you that the end of this, this whole chapter, and even the last words of the letter are good news for Corinth. And if it's good news for Corinth, it's good news for us. Because if the Apostle Paul held out hope, held out hope that a group of people like these Corinthians could pull it together and be a church to the glory of God, then that ought to give any church, no matter how dysfunctional it is, hope that God doesn't give up on his people. That his love is higher, wider, deeper, longer than any of these things that so often we trip up over. My friends, I, I just, this is my point, okay? Forget everything else. This is the thing I want you to get tonight. Because it's the gospel. We see the gospel at the end of the letter. This was not a church filled with perfect people. You might be here tonight thinking, oh, you're checking the church out, and you're like, I've always thought these people are just, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Or I've got to be perfect in order to go to this church. No, you don't. Or if you knew what I had done, there's no way that I could be a part of a church. You don't know what the Corinthians were involved in. It's worse than what you were doing. And yet, look at what Paul says. We get to the end of the letter, and there is love and acceptance and hope and encouragement. And Paul's just saying, listen, in spite of everything here, I love you. I love you. 
Now, this doesn't eliminate the need for repentance. We see in verse 22 that he says, listen, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, let him be condemned. It's very strong. Yet, for any who are in Christ, and what that means is, is that I have received, much like with the message that we heard in the baptism tonight, I have come to hear the gospel. I have, I have, I have heard of Christ and his death for me. I have received his salvation that is offered. I am not trying to earn it. I am receiving it as a gift. I believe that he's my savior. And now he is my Lord as I seek to live and live my life for him. And as I do that now, I am in the realm of the love of God. And that love is agape. And what have we found out about the agape, about agape love? It never ends. We can fail the Lord and we do so often. We can disappoint him and we do so often. And yet we find the love of God is greater than all our sins, as the hymn says. And praise God, praise God that this is the way that this letter ends. Because if there was love for even the Corinthians, then there is love and grace for us. And if there is love and grace for us, then sinner, there is love and grace for you. There is love and grace for you. And this is a word of hope, spiritual hope. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with your God through Christ into a relationship of love that even death cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that at the end of our lives and in eternity, God will be saying forever, I love you. I love you. And so how do we respond? I think with wonder. With worship. With service. With a kind of, my life is yours. That's how you respond to a love like that. And that's what we're called to do. And I trust the Lord will help us to do that for his glory. Amen.